If you got your Bibles, let's open to Luke chapter 18, Luke 18, and then we're going to jump back into 2 Samuel, but we're going to read chapter 16, verse 23, just that one verse, and then jump in and, uh, and read chapter 17 uh, moving forward. Uh, so here's the deal, all right? Uh, if you are in your 20s, this is a great message for you today, all right? Okay? Uh, if you're in your 20s, it's great. If you're in your 30s, this will be fairly applicable, all right? And then hopefully for some of you in your uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, this is one you can look back on today and be like, you know what? I did my best to try to do this. We're going to talk about today skipping steps, all right? Uh, and when it comes to leadership, all right, the Lord is developing you and training you and preparing you uh, for something that's in front of you. And sometimes he wants you to take the long way. And so uh, this is a great lesson. If you're in your 20s, I can save you a whole lot of trouble if you listen in on this one. Take some notes today. If in your 30s, a great lesson to take notes on. 40s, 50s, and 60s, let's hope we can end 70s and 80s, 90s. Maybe there's a 100-year-old person in here, all right? Uh, I see Eric there at the back. Are you close to No, I'm just kidding, Eric. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, there you go. Uh, just so you know, hopefully this is one you can look back on, all right? It starts with this question. Have you ever skipped to the end of something before? You ever skipped to the end of something before? Uh, I'm about to share something with you, and you may lose respect for me. I'm just going to tell you anyway, all right? Uh, so there was a book series back in the day called Harry Potter, all right? Do you remember Harry Potter? Any Harry Potter book fans out there, all right? So here's the deal. Huge fans of Harry Potter. So anyway, all that to say, we were in New York with a group of students, and I had not read any of the Harry Potter books, okay? Uh, and I'm telling you, probably 10,000 pages of literature uh, with the Harry Potter series, maybe more. And so all that to say, um, we're in New York. We had just done a mission trip to D.C., and uh, we had a group. What we would do is we'd mission in D.C., but then we would take high school seniors. And that year, we had somewhere between 15 and 30 high school seniors uh, that we brought with us. Uh, we took the train up to New York. And then you want to talk about a cool moment. We were working in West Texas. And to come up out of the tunnel for the first time, we engineered it so they got to see the city from the train. But then we would come up in Times Square. And then the kids would come up out of it. Most of them never been to New York before. And they'd turn 360 degrees and see the, the lights and the and the sounds of the city, and you could just watch the world just grow for them uh, in that moment. And so anyway, it was the week that we were down for mission trip, was the week that the Deathly Hollows released, uh, the book release, the very last book in the Harry Potter series. And so I'll never forget, we're riding the subway all these different places, and everyone is sitting with a book on the subway. In fact, there were several people we talked to that were just riding the subway end to end and reading the book the entire time, just, uh, just riding the subway, uh, reading the book. And so I looked over at Autumn and I was like, hey, I want to read the last two pages. And she's like, you what? You want to ruin the book? And I was like, I got to know how it ends, right? She's like, you don't even know how it started. And you want to read the last two pages? And I was like, yeah. So the last chapter is like two pages. And so I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to read the last two pages. And here's the thing. I read it. I can't really even spoil it for you because I have no clue what it was that I was reading because I didn't have the 10,000 pages of journey leading up to the last two pages. I did find this out. Spoiler alert. Harry didn't die. I mean, that's all I knew, right? From reading those last two pages that he somehow survived because he was listed. Maybe it was a ghost. I don't know, but he's listed on the last two pages. I tell you that to say this, the journey is incredibly important in everything that we do. And when it comes to the Lord, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, God does not waste time, okay? And because of that, that means that whatever path, whatever journey it is that you're on, he has you on the fastest track possible so that you have exactly what you need to be and to do 
called you to be and called you to do. Look with me, if you will, now at Luke chapter 18, and we're going to read verses 18 through 30. This is the story of the rich ruler, uh, and it's implied, a lot of people call him the rich young ruler, uh, because the idea is that he was someone who had everything. He approaches Jesus, uh, and he asks a really important question. Look at Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. It says, a certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Look at verse 19 here. Jesus spots the pride in this man immediately. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Jesus looks at him and says, okay, I spot the pride in you immediately. You know what you have to do to inherit eternal life. You have to be perfect. You can't be sinful in any way, shape, or form. Remember, Jesus has come so that he could take our place and be our sin substitute. But this man clearly is asking this question, trying to justify himself. Verse 21, all these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. I've never done anything wrong. Verse 22, it says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, the man became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. So Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, verse 26 is interesting. Remember, the disciples were not all poor. In fact, many scholars believe Peter was probably the richest man in the city of Capernaum. And so here's what's interesting. When Jesus has just said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, most of the disciples were like, what, what? Okay, uh, I count in that tax bracket, Jesus. Can you uh, enlighten me just a little bit? Look at verse 26. It says, then they asked him, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter then said to him, Lord, we left everything to follow you. I'll tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in the end of the age, in the age to come, eternal life. Now stop there for just a minute. You've got two people receiving the teaching, two sets of people. You've got the rich ruler, who again, some scholars call the rich young ruler, who has not been tested the same way that the disciples have, receiving the same teaching. But for him, he goes away sad because there's no way he's given up his wealth to follow Jesus. But then you have Peter and the other disciples who look at Jesus and go, we left everything we have to follow you. And Jesus looks at them and says, yep, and it's going to be counted to you because you know at the end of things, your wealth you can't take with you. Your stuff you can't take with you. What's going to be counted towards you is what really matters, eternal life. I want to encourage you. Go on the journey that God has for you. Go through the time of training. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? This is not scripture. This is from my dad. He said this when I was a kid, and it always stuck with me, and truly I've lived my life by it. Are you ready? Give your 20s to training and your 30s to calling. All right? Let me say that again. Give your 20s to training and your 30s to calling. Now, there are certainly moments here in this city where your 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s can all be given to training. The key that I found around here is there are a lot of 20-year-olds where you were the big fish in your little pond that you came from, and you desire to be the big fish in the ocean that we have here in this city immediately and as fast as possible. 
to encourage you. Give your 20s to training. Give the early portion of your life, let the journey unfold in the way that God has it unfolding because God is not wasting any time. He has steps that he wants you to walk through. And part of those steps are learning something that we're going to call today the burden of leadership. The burden of leadership has to be learned early on in the small things that we do so that then we are ready for the big moments that God puts in front of us. I'll never forget, I had a moment with my dad years ago, and I had two job offers that came available at the same time. I'm 21, 22, and uh, the first offer was to be an intern for the ministry called Paradigm that my dad had started at Texas Tech University. At the time, it was about 1,600 college kids for a Thursday night Bible study gathering. Really was a special, special thing. We watched it start in my parents' front bedroom, and it evolved into something really, really special. All that to say, uh, 1,600 college kids, and they were hiring a Paradigm intern to kind of be the liaison for the church that, uh, that they were at. Again, great opportunity. But some of you heard the story that I've shared previously working at Red Lobster, uh, where there was a couple that came up and said, we have an interim youth minister position at First Baptist Church in Post, Texas, Post the town of about 1,500 total people, uh, less people in that town than in the entire Bible study that was meeting on Thursday nights. And they said, we'd like to hire you as our interim youth minister. And I remember I went to my dad and I go, I got two job offers. Which one should I take? Clearly, I'm supposed to take the paradigm job. And my dad stopped and he goes, son, did I ever tell you the story of the tugboat captain versus the first officer in the ocean, on the ocean liner? And I was like, nope, I can definitely tell you, you've never told me that one before. It was from West Texas where there wasn't a whole lot of water. He said, and this was so powerful. He said, which is the higher position? First officer on the ocean liner or captain of the tugboat? And I remember I looked at him and I went, uh, well, the first officer on the ocean liner gets to wear the nice suit. First officer on the ocean liner has more people to take care of. First officer on the ocean liner has the bigger boat. So it's got to be that position, right? First officer on the ocean liner makes more money. He looked over and he said, I didn't train you right at all. He said, the captain of the tugboat's the higher position for the phase of life that you're in right now. I said, how can that be? I said, the job's less money, less people, less prestige. The group at post was 15 kids. I remember him looking at me and he said, but they'll give you room to fail and they will teach you the burden of leadership. Buck stops with you. You'll have to put the services together yourself. He said, if you take the paradigm job, you're going to run our system. He said, this job, you could actually learn how to preach. I left that meeting and I was like, whatever. You know what I mean? I'm still taking the good job. I've noticed any of you meet with somebody who offers you good advice that you truly respect and they offer you advice that goes against what you thought, not against scripture, but against what you were planning to do, it doesn't mean you have to do what they tell you to do. But you would do well to stop and to really consider what it is that they're saying. So I went home, I prayed, and then all of a sudden I could see it. I needed to try this job. So I turned down the internship possibility, and I took the job at First Baptist Church in Post, Texas, to be their student minister. And can I tell you what happened? That very first week that we met together, the youth group doubled in size because they wanted to see the new student minister. And I preached the worst sermon in the history of my life. It was so bad. Not only that, I ran a retreat while I was with them. I mean, it was awful. I remember we took in all cash 
from the kids. And then when we got done, I went to the, uh, I went to the financial secretary and I said, hey, uh, uh, I said, uh, we've got a little extra money that we made off the trip. I had like $2.15 left over. And she goes, you don't have any receipts for me? I go, no, we just had the kids pay in cash. She puts her hand over her head and she goes, you just embezzled $250. And I was like, what? Oh my gosh, am I going to jail? She goes, you're not going to jail this time, all right? I remember she grabbed my wrist and she slapped me on the wrist and she goes, that's what you get, but you better turn in receipts next time. And I have every time since. Can I tell you what happened? They taught me burden of leadership. There was room for me to make mistakes. If I'd done that on the ocean liner, oh my gosh, it would have been a completely different situation. The Lord provides for us in the journey so that we can learn, so that we can grow. Now, I want to give a qualifying statement, okay? God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called, amen? But he does qualify the called, He leads you down a path and prepares you for his namesake, what it is that he has in front of you to do. To shun that and to not walk the path of training, of learning, is a very wicked and prideful thing when we think we should be in the seat of decision-making immediately. So it begs the big question. This really is the story of Absalom's kingship. What happens when a leader skips steps? What happens when a leader skips steps? Now flip open, 2 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to read that last little verse, and then we're going to jump into chapter 17. Are you ready? Remember, this is right on the heels of the, uh, of the story where uh, uh, Ahithropel, uh, Bathsheba's grandfather, uh, has, uh, as the first order of business with Absalom, he has said, hey, I'll tell you what you should do first. Uh, you should show them that there's a new rooster in the hen house. You should sleep with your father's concubines. Do it on the roof of the palace. Uh, do it to humiliate him, uh, and then also to show that you're the big dog who's in charge right now. It was terrible and wicked advice. Now look at what happens in verse 23. It says, now in those days, the advice of Ahithropel that he gave was like one who inquires of God. That's how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithropel's advice. Stop right there for just a minute. Remember, Ahithropel is the king's chief of staff uh, there in Israel. He was with David after great humiliation. He is now with Absalom, and Absalom is listening to what he has to say. But this is so interesting. Chapter 17, immediately after this last verse, 23 and 16, Absalom is going to discard Ahithropel's advice for the very first time. You cannot tell me that there is not a connection to what happened in 16 with the concubines and what happens in 17 where he discards the good advice that Ahithropel has given to him. Are you ready for this? Look at chapter 17, verse 1. It says, So Ahithropel then said to Absalom, As a second order of business, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he's weary and weak. I would strike him with terror, and then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of one man that you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders in Israel. But you got to remember, Absalom has just done this vile thing that Ahithropolis suggested. Look at verse 5. But Absalom said, someone also hush the archite so that we can hear what he has to say. Now stop right there for just a minute. The Absalom side here is the ungodly side. But the leadership principle here is still very powerful. What we have is Absalom receiving the advice that will establish his kingship. 
David is on the run. Not only that, if they're going to be able to find David not hiding in a cave, they need to do it quickly while he has to stop for the night with the big group that's with him. I mean, this is the moment. This is the military advice that that Absalom needs to receive. But because he's not ever borne the burden of leadership, he's not able to hear it, and he asks for a second opinion. If you're taking notes, write this down. What happens when a leader skips steps? Number one, they lack vital discernment. They lack vital discernment. Discernment comes from the spirit of Almighty God. But you have to learn how to listen to him. You have to learn how to hear it. Not only that, but the things that we watch unfold, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of leaders around us, train us and educate us so that we are ready when we are the ones in the seat to make the big decision. Um, little side note here also, by the way, if you are in the Ahithropal, the chief position, uh, this is a good little side note for you to take. Are you ready for this? You can give the best advice and still not be heard if your character is suspect. Let me say that again. You can give the best advice and still not be heard if your character is suspect. After what has happened with the concubines in the previous passage, Absalom is sitting there going, I got to put Ahithropal and his revenge seeking in its place. With what he's written here about David, he's given him great military advice. But it also reeks of go after David, him alone. You take him down and you gut him like a pig. That would have caused Absalom in front of the group to go, yeah, he's definitely hate-filled when it comes to my father. He can't hear the truth because his character is suspect. Part of the journey is learning how to hear that vital, with discernment, to hear the truth when somebody else is offering a competing view. Just because they're the loudest or just because there's the most people attached to it doesn't mean that that's the godliest advice that you could get. Our journey to plant Waterfront Church was a more than 10-year journey. From the time God gave the vision to us working on figuring out that we were supposed to plant and not to work at a pre-existing church, there were all these different twists and turns. A lot of people just jump in and plant. For us, Again, it was more than a decade, and four years specifically, we spent on the strategy of getting ready to plant our church here. Took numerous mission trips here. I mean, we really put in the time. One of the first books we read was a book called Launch by Nelson Searcy. If any of you have ever wanted to plant a church before or be a part of a journey like that, Launch is one of the best books you could read. Nelson planted a church uh, in New York City, and their first Sunday was the week before 9-11. Can you imagine that being your first Sunday to start? Week before 9-11 in New York was their first Sunday. I'll never forget in reading the story, uh, and Nelson puts uh, three things that he says, uh, uh, three reasons that church plants fail. He says lack of calling, lack of strategy, and lack of funding. But the problem is for the planter, you hear one. You hear lack of funding, lack of funding, lack of funding, right? In fact, the whole reason that we uh, delayed in the beginning coming to Plant Waterfront is I remember Autumn and I putting together a list of pros and cons uh, for working at a pre-existing church uh, versus coming here to plant in D.C. We put the list together separately, and our pros list were both a mile long. The cons list for each of us, it was almost the same wording even, was one thing, steady paycheck. 
And I remember Autumn looking at me with the two lists, and she goes, if steady paycheck outweighs all of these other reasons, then we have a faith issue that needs to be addressed. I'm so glad that she said that because it was so true. But the funding, you get really, really nervous about the money. And so for four years, we worked on the logistics. We worked on the strategy. We had the calling. Many of you have heard my calling story about how the Lord called us here to serve even before we'd ever even been to D.C. before. And then all of a sudden... In the last year before we planted, we had two really important phone calls. Again, you're worried about the money and how it's going to come together. We had put together a budget for the first five years that it was going to take $1.3 million for us to plant the first five years. That had to do with space rental over at the Marriott. That had to do uh, with us getting all the portable church materials and then trying to pay our family salary, modest salary. And we undershot big time. Uh, but trying to pay our salary so that we could live here in the area as well. But it was five years, $1.3 million to put all of it together. God was very good because it ended up taking twice that. I, he was very good to let me believe it was only going to be $1.3 million. I'll never forget, um, we get a call about a year out. And it's from a really large church. And the church says, hey, we heard your vision story. We love it. They said, uh, how about this? They said, we want to give you $1.3 million. I said, what? Are you serious? They said, yeah, yeah, we got a couple of catches to it. They said, uh, we want you to name the church after our church. And we want to live stream in our pastor every week. You'll be the one to run the church. But the teaching will be live streamed from this larger group, specifically a southern group. And I'll never forget, without skipping a beat, my response was, no thanks. And Autumn is over there on the side because we took all these calls together on speakerphone. It's just part of our journey. And Autumn's over there on the side, and she's like, mm, I mean, just doing this. She was just like, yeah, give it, right? So I remember saying to her, so then she comes back, and the guy goes, well, you're not even going to pray about this and consider it? I said, I feel a bit like Esau. And you're trying to steal my birthright for a bowl of chili. I said, God gave the vision. I said, we feel like this is supposed to be something else. And I'm telling you, we let it go. If I had not been a decade in in the process and right before planting, the Lord led us down this journey teaching discernment so that we didn't just hear $1.3 million. We heard the hooks and the stipulations that come along with it. We had another organ very famous mission organization that we really wanted to partner with us. And I remember we had the date set up for the meeting, circled the date on the calendar, uh, prayed over it and prepared for it. And then when we got onto it, it was a Zoom call. And when we got into the meeting, I told my vision story. And I remember the head of that organization smirking and laughing. I don't know if he remembered he was on Zoom, but I could see him smirking and laughing as I told this story that the Lord had really led us in our life uh, to do this thing. And uh, he also waved over some other people in the office in the back so they could listen to the story. Now, here's what's funny about a vision story. Vision stories sound crazy until it happens. And then when it does, you end up a legend. But that moment, that moment made me feel so deeply low. And then he looked over and he goes, so we want to give you some money. He said, but uh, the place that you're wanting to plant, that Navy Yard area, he said, it's all wrong. He said, you're more suited for Georgetown. He said, so if you want us to buy in, he said, you're going to need to relocate the church before you ever start it to Georgetown. Can you imagine Waterfront in Georgetown? It's not the same. 
in any way, shape, or form. Again, it's no, not speaking ill of Georgetown. It's just that wasn't what we were crafted for. Plus, we had 10 stinking years of ministry here in this portion of the community. And so I did something that I still can't believe I did to this day. We needed their help. We needed their support. And I looked at him and I said, thanks, but no thanks. And I said, and if you'd like to put in writing that you put a stipulation on the area that we were going to plant in, I said, that would really help me with some of our mission partners that we look into. Again, there's Autumn on the side. You know, give it to him, right? He comes back and guess what? They readdress. He goes, you really feel called the Navy Yard. I said, with all my heart, it's what we've been working towards. He said, let me see what we can do. They ended up partnering anyway, and this is exactly where we were supposed to be. If I don't have 10 years of journey, if I don't have 10 years of trudging, then I'm telling you, I don't know with discernment to look at them and say, you can keep the money. The vision is that important. The strategy is that important. This is what we're supposed to do. If you're in your 20s today, you don't just learn that. You have to see it. You have to experience it. It doesn't mean that God can't do amazing things with you in your 20s, but don't be above the training. Amen? Don't be above the training. We get a sense of entitlement in this city, and you have to die to it. It's pride. By the way, Jesus does this perfectly. One of my favorite DC-oriented stories. Save your spot in 2 Samuel. Flip to Luke chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 20. Uh, through 26. Luke 20, 20 through 26. Wonderful little passage. Look at what happens. Luke 20, uh, verses 20 through 26. It says, keeping a close watch on him, the Pharisees and Sadducees sent spies who pretended to be honest. <laughs> they hoped to catch Jesus in something uh, that he said so that, he might, so that they might hand him over to the power and authorities of the governor. So they sent spies to question him. It says, teacher, we know that you speak and you speak and you teach what is right. And that you show, uh, you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now stop there. Is that not journalism of this day as well? Hey, we think you're great, Jesus. You're impartial. Should we pay taxes or not? Now here's what they've done. They've looked and said, are you Israeli nationalist or are you Roman sympathizer? Are you Roman sympathizer? Are you on the left or the right here, Jesus? Are you Republican or Democrat? Where do you fall on this political issue? Do you think Jesus had gone through through that day and time and not experienced that question before. But on the spot, in this moment, they look at him and they go, which is it, Jesus? Pay taxes to Caesar or not? You Republican or Democrat? Which part of the two-party system do you choose? Now look at what it says, verse 23. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a coin, show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on this? Caesar's, they replied. So he said to them, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said. They're in public, and, they, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Now, he's the son of God, and he knows all things. But the picture here is discernment, realizing what the moment was actually about, set up to catch him. And Jesus looks and goes, I ain't playing the game. I'm not picking a side. I'm on the side of Almighty God, Yahweh. And there are multiple governments taking place all across the world. You can still be godly no matter who it is that's in power. Amen? What a beautiful thing here. Vital discernment in that moment. It begs the question, are you actively observing leaders with a critical eye instead of a critical spirit? Let me say that again. Are you actively observing leaders with a critical eye instead of a critical spirit? A critical eye analyzes a person and their way of life 
and you watch the way their decision-making unfolds. A critical spirit goes, I hate him. Can't stand my boss. Hate him. Can't stand my mom or dad. Hate him. Can't stand that person who's in leadership in our community. Can't stand any of those people. Not a good thing can come from that individual. Listen to me. A critical eye analyzes their way of life. A critical spirit just hates the person. You would do wise at this phase in life. Anyone who's in leadership over you, there are good things that God can teach you from their life and from their decisions. Good things, even from some of the most wicked of people. Are you at a point where you can only see the person? If so, your road toward discernment is going to take a lot longer. Is that a good word? I'm teaching you power on this if you're listening. Watch with a critical eye and not with a critical spirit. Now look at what happens next. Flip back to 2 Samuel and let's read verses 6 through 13. We're about to hear from Hushai, and this is so crazy, okay? Coming from West Texas myself, Hushai is about to use four similes in his discussion uh, with, uh, with Absalom. And what's so funny about this is you're going to get to see him. The four similes, he's going to try to pitch this deal. But remember, Hushai is on David's side. He's David's operative, and he just needs to buy David some time. But he's going to speak with these four similes, and it kind of sounds a bit West Texas. And so are you ready for this? Here it comes. Okay, verse 6. It says, When Hushai came to Absalom and said, Ahithropel's given uh, this advice, Uh, Should we do what he said? If not, give us your opinion. I love what Hushai says here to Absalom. Hushai says, uh, the advice Ahithropel's given is not good at this time. Underline not good at this time. You know your father and his men. They are fighters. Underline they are fighters. As fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Underline as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced what? Fighter. Underline fighter again. He will not spend the night with the troops. Even now, he's hidden in a cave or some other place. If you should attack your troops, if, if he should attack your troops first, who hears about it will say, there's been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Therefore, uh, even the bravest soldier, look at this, whose heart is the heart is like the heart of a lion. Underline like the heart of a lion will melt with fear for all Israel knows that your father is what a fighter under a lot of fighter and those who with who are with him are brave so I advise you let all the men from Darren to Beersheba as numerous as the sands on the seashore underline as numerous as the sands on the seashore be gathered to you with you yourself leading them into battle then we will attack him wherever he may be found and we will fall on him look at this as dew settles on the ground underline as dew settles on the ground neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he's with, uh, if he is, if he withdraws into the city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we will drag it to the valley until not even a piece of it can be found. Stop right there for just a minute. Notice all the hyperbole, all the discussion, but what's Hushai trying to do? He's just trying to buy David some time. He's just trying to buy his friend some time. So what does he do? He looks at Absalom, who has never run a successful military engagement. He's run a great coup, but he's never run a successful military engagement. And he looks at him and goes, you really want to go against your father, a trained fighter? You really want to go against his men, the bravest of the brave, like a mother bear robbed of her cubs? Can you picture the good old boy nature in this? He's speaking straight to the heart of Absalom. And listen. And he is needling his fear. Part of the journey is not just learning discernment. It's learning courage. Leadership requires sufficient courage for the big decisions that are being made. And that's our second point. Number two, what happens to a leader that skips steps? Number two, they lack sufficient courage. They lack sufficient courage. 
in this passage, Absalom has been given the advice from Ahithropel that will establish his kingship. But he doesn't have the discernment to hear it. Because all Hushai has to do is say, you really want to fight your father? You've heard all the stories. You've heard about Goliath since you were a boy. You've heard about the Philistines and the slaughters there. You've heard about the big battles that he's won. In fact, you probably were a part of the prayer team that prayed for your father while he was out at war. You really want to stand up against him when you're not at full force? And he can't hear it. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? Those who gain a title without previously bearing the burden of leadership will often be given to amplified fear and paranoia. Say that again. Those who gain a title without previously bearing the burden of leadership will often be given to amplified fear and paranoia. Had a situation years ago um, when I was 16. Um, I had uh, a couple of friends who one night were in a nightclub, were walking across 4th Street in Lubbock, Texas, and uh, they got hit by a car. Both of them ended up going to the hospital uh, and uh, it's just a really tough deal. It was right before the start of our football season, too. And uh, one was our middle linebacker. One was our wide receiver. Uh, we were picked to go really deep in the playoffs that year. But, man, when you lose your middle linebacker and you lose your wide receiver, our, he was one of our best. And so it was just a really tough deal. Anyway, I'm 16. Before Red Lobster, I worked a job for a year and a half as a wallpaperer's assistant. And so uh, those are skills you don't lose, by the way. I can still scrape wallpaper with the best of them, and uh, I can still hang wallpaper with the best of them. And so um, i never forget, working as a wallpaper's assistant, had to go to work. But before work that day, I ended up going to, uh, ended up going to UMC Hospital there, University Medical Center Hospital in Lubbock, uh, to visit these two young men and uh, visited them. Had a good meeting, but if you've ever been to a hospital before, they usually build on to the hospitals, and so it's like a maze to try to get out. You can get where you're going, but it's really tough to get out uh, the way that you came in unless you leave a trail of breadcrumbs, right? And so I'll never forget, I'm leaving the hospital, but I exited the wrong side, and I was worried I wasn't going to get to work on time. So instead of just walking through the hallways, I went to the outside of the building, and I walked through the field on the side uh, to try to get back to my car. Again, I'm 16 years old. Well, as I leave the building, I see I'm 16 and I see this woman who looks like she's following me and she looks like she's probably 40 and she's following me on the side. And I'm just like, that's really strange. I walk to the outside of the building. I'm in a field next to the hospital and this woman's about 15 feet behind me just walking with me. Well, again, I'm 16. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? This is so weird. I just thought maybe she's lost too. I mean, who knows, right? Maybe she was trying to find her way out. Well, I get to my car. And then all of a sudden, with a big, thick, heavy Russian accent, she goes, I thought we'd never find your car. You will take me home. And I'm 16, and I was always just like a do-gooder kid since I came to Christ. Always tried to do the right thing. And I remember, I'm like, uh, okay. And all of a sudden, she gets in my car. And this is before the time of cell phones, kids, all right? And so I'm telling you, just no way to contact anybody. We get in my car, and she leads me to her house. And then when we pull up to her house, I go, I guess I'll see you later. And she goes, you will wait here for me and you will take me to the grocery store. And you know what I did? I waited for her. I was just like, okay, you know, I'll do it, whatever. I'm sitting there in the car. Everything in me is like, leave, you idiot, leave. But I'm telling you, I didn't have sufficient courage. And so I'm sitting there just shaking and waiting. She got back in the car. She goes, you will take me to the grocery store. And I drove to the grocery store. 
And at the grocery store, she bought groceries, came back outside and loaded up the car. Well, at that point, I'm sitting there and I'm like, Lord, I have to get out of this situation. And then I'm thinking, she's left the hospital. I'm doing like drug drops with her. I mean, who knows what's going on? And I was scared. I was like, she could kill me at the next stop. I mean, what am I going to do? So I'm sitting there in the car and I was like, what do I need to do? And I'm telling you, finally, it was like, I'm on University Avenue, right there by Texas Tech. And I was like, I'm just going to pull over in the middle of the road. And I did. I stopped in the middle of the road and she goes, what are you doing? Drive me to my friend's house. What are you doing? And I said, ma'am, will you please get out of the car? And she goes, you will take me to where I want to go. And I said, ma'am, I'm going to take the keys out and get out and just leave the car in the middle of the street if you don't get out right now. And she goes, ah, fine. Takes all of her groceries like into the middle of the median. And then I speed off and head off in the distance. I did not have sufficient courage to kick her out of the car until the potentially third stop of the journey. I get to the house that we're working at, the wallpaper's assistant. And my boss looks at me and he goes, dude, you're an hour late. He said, where have you been? And I was like, there's this crazy Russian lady that made me drive her around town. <laughs> he goes, what? And I tell him the story. And he goes, I'm going to do something for you. He said, I'm going to write you up for what you did. And I said, but I told you the story. I told you about it. He goes, no, no, you need to remember. He said, there are consequences for you not being at work on time. And he said, I want you to remember that you look that person in the eye and you say, I have to go to work. He said, anybody who means well for you will understand that. He said, I'm writing you up. He said, without any penalties, but I'm going to write you up for this one. It was the kindest thing he could have done. And you know what? I don't give random strangers rides to the supermarket anymore, all right? Doesn't happen. The journey, you learn sufficient courage so that you're prepared for what's ahead. It begs this question, are you taking your low-level responsibilities seriously? Are you taking your low-level leadership responsibilities seriously? For some of you, you are so bothered that you feel like your education, your age, that where you came from and how you've been trained means that you deserve to be in a bigger position or a more prestigious position than you're in right now. The Lord unfolds it in his time. Don't miss this. The fastest, we did the study on Joseph, remember, in the book of Genesis? The fastest path for Joseph to be the chief of staff in Pharaoh's administration goes through the prison. Isn't that interesting? The fastest path for Joseph to make his way to be the second in command at the palace goes straight through the prison. Who could possibly know that? God does. As you go through the journey, allow God to unfold the journey. There may be something that you need to know along the way. And then we've got our last little verse here. 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 14. And spoiler alert, it really could have been just a one-verse message. Are you ready for this? Here's the verse that sums it all up. It says, Absalom and all his men in Israel, all the men in Israel, said, The advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithropel. Why? Are you ready? For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithropel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Stop right there for just a minute. At the end of the day, the Lord had decided it was going to unfold this way. That's another thing that a leader has to understand as they walk with God over a period of time. Ultimately, God can do whatever he wants in the situation. If you're taking notes, write this down. You ready? What happens when a leader skips steps? Number one, they lack vital discernment. Number two, they lack sufficient courage. 
And number three, they estimate the extent of God's sovereignty. They underestimate the extent of God's sovereignty. God still wants us to be good leaders. Part of being a good leader is understanding. At any point, at any time, God's will will be made known. God's will will carry out and carry through. A little, uh, little quote here for you. Be forever mindful that all things in the universe exist while in complete submission to God. Be forever mindful that all things in the universe exist while in complete submission to God. You know who understand that just about as well as anybody in the history of Scripture? David. David understood it. David understands that God's will and God's provision sometimes come because of the things that we've worked hard for, and sometimes they come because the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Sometimes it just shows up because the Lord provides it. Do you remember when Joshua and the army of Israel are marching towards uh, the city and all of a sudden standing in the middle of the road is a powerful heavenly warrior. They can see that it's a leader of the angel armies. And Joshua looks and says, are you for us or are you against us? And do you remember what the army angel, the angel of the army says? He says, uh, neither. I'm the, I'm the leader of the Lord's army. I'm on the Lord's side. What he wills comes about, and you just happen to be on his side today. So I'm going to fight alongside you. The picture there is powerful. God can do whatever he wants to do. And powerful godly leaders have to understand. Sometimes we plan. Sometimes we plot. Sometimes we craft with the godliest of intentions. But at the end of the day, God does what he wants to do. Why? Because he's God. The longer you walk with God and the more you watch for him, the more we come in line with his will. It's not asking him to bless what we do. It's telling him we want to be a part of what you're already doing. It begs the final question today. Are you in God's word daily and watching for his handiwork? Are you in God's word daily and watching for his handiwork? whether you're 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, or plus. The more time we spend in God's Word, the more we're able to see His fingerprints all around us. One of the best things you can do as you prepare for a moment of leadership is spend time in God's Word every single day. The more you know about His character, the easier it is to spot Him in the world around us. Thanks for listening today. For some of you in your 20s, if you took some notes, I'm telling you, this could save you a whole lot of heartache when you feel like you're in a position and you deserve better. The Lord has you on a journey. For those of you who are older, hopefully you could look back with pride today that maybe you navigated it the right way. Let's bow our heads for prayer.